In the final episode of the Ingerlot story, A Miscarriage of Justice, myself, Catherine Rice, and co-producer Matthew Brown asked the question why, as some believe, would police officers deliberately frame an innocent man? And we look at a missing piece of the puzzle, Werner Corollis, a man who confessed to his involvement in the Ingerlot's murder, but whose confession was seemingly dismissed by police. It's been 16 years since 22-year-old Inga Lotz, an academically brilliant university student, was brutally murdered in her own apartment in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Two years after her murder, her boyfriend, Fred van der Feyfer, was acquitted. But since then, little effort has been made by the police to find the real killer. What is particularly startling is the fact that one man actually did claim he had been involved in the killing. Werner Corollis, a man with a long criminal record. His story was never properly investigated, but in 2008, top cop Pitful Yun was tasked with investigating a case of defeating the ends of justice against Werner because he had allegedly changed his story repeatedly and had wasted the police's time. During Fulyun's investigation, he met with Werner's lawyer and state advocates. To Fulyun's surprise, Werner's lawyer said Werner would plead guilty to the murder in exchange for a shorter-than-usual sentence of just 10 years. But the case against him wasn't pursued. In fact, it seems state advocates didn't believe him. Fulyun's report on the defeating the ends of justice allegations had intriguing conclusions. He found that Werner should have been investigated properly for the murder of Engelotz. News24 has a copy of Fulyun's report in which he questions why Werner would accept a 10-year prison sentence if he wasn't involved in the murder. This question remains unanswered. It's Catherine Rice speaking. Um, how are you? All right, I'll complain, I'll complain. Sorry, man, I saw, saw your message, but you know, I'm, I'm not in the police anymore, so I'm not allowed to, to discuss anything. They can charge me for talking about cases. Pitful Yun has since left the police service. When we finally got hold of him, he declined our request for an interview. He did, however, confirm that he wrote the report in our possession and that he stands by it. Backtrack to 2005. The veracity of the attack and no signs of forced entry had convinced police that only Fred van der Feyfer could have murdered Inger. Author Anthony Altbecker believes, initially at least, they had good reason for that decision. I think when the, the, the investigators from the Serious and Violent Crimes Unit heard about this confession, their concern was that when they took Fred to court, this would be raised by the defense to muddy the waters of the trial, to offer an alternative version of what had happened. I think that their minds, they were pretty sure that this was a crime committed by somebody close to Inga. They were pretty sure about the fingerprints um, and they were prepared to go all out to make sure that this problem for their investigation went away. Witness statements that a workman had rested a ladder against Inga's balcony that afternoon fell on deaf ears. 
Although drug use could explain the brutality of the crime, it did not strike a chord with police when Werner Carolis confessed to being on methamphetamine that day. By 2008, when Werner's name again popped up and his lawyer said Werner was prepared to accept a 10-year sentence for his alleged involvement in the murder, it was again bad timing for the police. Just as Werner's lawyer discussed the offer of a plea deal with prosecutors, Fred was at the very same time pursuing a civil damages claim against the police. If a legitimate new suspect was found, Fred's claim of malicious prosecution may well have been even stronger. But Fred and his family say they were in the dark about these developments. In January this year, when we sent Fred the 2008 report on Corollas, it was apparently the first time he had been made aware of it. At the end of Fred's criminal trial in 2007, prosecutors closed their case by saying that Judge Dion Fonsale should find Fred guilty of murder, and if he didn't, he was accepting that at least six policemen had lied under oath. On the 29th of November 2007, the judge came back with a not guilty verdict, but did not go so far as to say Fred had been framed. But when Fred sued the state, the High Court found that it had indeed been a malicious prosecution and that evidence had been manipulated by investigating officers. This was subsequently overturned by the Supreme Court of Appeal, who found that while some police officers, Bartholomew in particular, acted with malice, the ultimate decision by the prosecution to proceed with the trial was not proven to be motivated by malice. The allegations from Fred's lawyers are that police lifted Fred van der Feyfer's fingerprint from a glass and presented it as coming from a rented DVD cover. That police altered a blood mark to look like the sole of Fred's sports shoe. That they lied about an FBI expert's opinion. That they withheld evidence. That they submitted an arrest warrant stating there was blood found on an ornamental hammer when they knew there wasn't that they bent that hammer in tests on pig and sheep heads, then used a different hammer, but presented the results as having been done with the original hammer, that they threatened witnesses and suppressed a confession. The accusation is that police did all of this in order to frame a complete stranger. To most, these allegations must seem outrageous. I guess the biggest question is why would the police do this? Um, I guess another question is how unusual is it? I think in this case the reason the police did it starts off pretty simply, that they genuinely believed they had their man. Um, I don't think all the police officers knew the problems with the evidence. Um, and I think that the problems with the evidence were scattered amongst different police officers and nobody had sufficient grasp that all of it was problematic. So even if they knew there were some problems here and there, they thought the other evidence um, supported their conclusions. In addition to that, I think, you know, once you start going down that road, it's very hard to turn back. I think, I think it's very hard to admit the mistake, particularly in something as high profile as this, where so much seems at stake. Which raises the question of how often does it happen? How often do police fabricate evidence? American fingerprint expert Pat Vertime says this is not unique to South Africa. 
in my career as a fingerprint examiner, I have observed very tenacious detectives who were outstanding at what they did, and they had a clearance rate for catching criminals above average in their various departments. But I have personally observed some of those detectives go overboard, so convinced that they have a guilty man that they feel like it's a lesser sin to fabricate the evidence than it is to let this guilty man go free. And what I see in this case is consistent with that. If those detectives were always right, and I believe they are right most of the time, they've got the right man, but they lack the physical evidence. And so they fabricate something. It goes to court, they get their conviction, the right man goes to jail. The problem is they don't always have the right man. He believes not all the investigating officers knew about the suspected fabrication, but at least several of them must have. In this particular case, I would find it very difficult to believe that a single officer could have done this without the knowledge of anyone else involved. Uh, I think there must have been two or three uh, cooperating in the effort. The crime scene processing, the evidence gathering in this case was abysmal. I have been contacted by a number of South African police officers and fingerprint experts and crime scene officers by email in the last several years. And most of them are, are highly apologetic and they say this is not the way we work. I believe the vast, vast majority of officers with the South African police are conscientious as they are with any other police department in the world. One of the ways you can describe this is what Americans call incestuous amplification. That you only talk to people who agree with you. So you think there might be something a bit fishy about the bloody mark, but hang on, we've got the fingerprint. The fingerprint proves he did it. Well, there might be something fishy about the fingerprint, but we've got the hammer. We've also got the letter. All of this read in the right way suggests, well, you've got this mosaic. There are these four or five or six pieces that all add up to Fred being guilty. But what if all of those mosaic pieces don't fit the picture? And nobody seems to have been in a position to say, hang on guys, none of it tells the story we've convinced ourselves um, is the truth. So how often does this happen in South African courts? I guess the short answer is we don't know. What we do know is that the idea that the police can frame the guilty and that they should have a free hand to frame the guilty, to make sure that they have the evidence against people they know to be guilty, even when they don't have that evidence, I think is deeply, deeply dangerous. And that's particularly dangerous um, in contexts where the police, police legitimacy is low, uh, where levels of competence are not high, where the courts are overworked, and where people struggle to access good quality defense and, and experts who, will, who can contest police evidence. When Fred won his civil case against the police and was awarded 46 million rand in damages, it must have felt like a final vindication. However, his victory was short-lived. The police appealed to the Supreme Court of Appeal and won. Fred's payout would be reversed, and he would be the one footing the legal bill of the police. To add insult to injury, Fred is now responsible for the legal fees incurred by the police in defending themselves in the civil case. Uh, the initial bill is five or six million rand. To add further insults to further injury, uh, 
included in that 5 million rand are costs for expert fees. Um, included amongst those experts are the police officers who testified against Fred in the criminal trial. Fred is in effect paying the police officers who lied. But the Supreme Court of Appeal did find that Bartholomew was dishonest and that he intentionally persisted with a story which he knew could not be true. Malice, at least on the part of Bartholomew, was therefore proven. Where the SCA differed from the trial court is whether Bartholomew's footprint evidence actually led to Fred's prosecution. It did not, the court found, and with that, Fred's claim failed. But not everyone agrees with this finding. The judgment is, to my mind, quite strange, because what they say is that they agree that Fred's lawyers have shown that the police lied, that they knowingly lied, that this was malicious. But they say that because the prosecutors knew that the evidence was weak, you cannot say that Bartholomew's lies led to the prosecution because the prosecutors must have known something else. They must have proceeded with the prosecution in spite of the lies because they knew they were lies. We asked the National Prosecuting Authority why they proceeded with the allegation that Fred's shoe had left the blood mark after Bill Bodziak told them that Captain Bruce Bartholomew had lied about his trip to Florida. NPA spokesperson Eric Kintabazalila responded. Please note that the decision of the DPP to proceed against Mr. Fander Pfeiffer was discussed at great length in both the Western Cape High Court and the Supreme Court of Appeal. And the latter ruled that the DPP was correct to proceed in view of all the other circumstantial evidence. We have therefore nothing further to add. Despite numerous attempts, the police service as well as prosecutors involved in this case declined to go on the record. Hi, Colonel Dupree. It's Catherine Rice speaking. I'm a journalist from News24. Uh, lady, I'm not allowed to speak to journalists. They sent out a letter. They will fire me if I speak to any journalist. So I don't want to be fired at this stage. The case remains open, but the investigating officer, Colonel Martinez Dupree, also declined to comment. For Fred, this case will haunt him for the rest of his life. He is a free man today, but it could easily have gone the other way, and he could have been sentenced to life behind bars. If I think of how close it was for me to actually end up in that situation, halfway through our trial, when, when the state finished presented their case, um, before the international experts testified on my behalf, things were were looking very dim for me. Um, and so, again, just thinking about what would have happened if I only testified myself and did not have the means to, to get anybody else to testify on my behalf, I, I could have been in prison as an innocent person. So, therefore, getting so close to, to that scenario, I guess, it's difficult to rule out the possibility that there are other people who have not been as fortunate as, as I've been. Fred's life was ruined, but what of Inga's parents, says Terry Price. 
And what perturbs me in particular is what have the police done to investigate the real murderer of Inga Lotz? Her parents can never put this to rest until the murderer is found. And I don't think they've done enough to look for the murderer. I, I think there are a number of fingers pointing, and I'm not going to say any more than that, that certain persons being responsible for this murder. And in some instances, it's more than just a finger. That information has been given to them, and I haven't seen any follow-up. Which brings us back to Werner Carolas. We tracked down his lawyer, Alvain Kribeno. He represented Werner when he agreed to enter into a plea agreement in 2008. Very strange, or I, I, I thought it very strange at the time that the police were not interested in following up the allegations that he was making. There's someone saying, yes, I did it. At least you'll interview the guy and sit down with him and uh, ask him a couple of questions and see where you're going. Especially if he comes up with a plea agreement and he says, I'll take 10 years for, for committing this crime. I mean, don't just... To us, Werner Corolla seems to be a crucial piece of the puzzle, and it's not as if he's disappeared into the ether. Even though Corollas was an alias, he was easy to track down. On Facebook, he has a public profile populated with numerous photos. He responded to a Facebook message surprisingly quickly, but declined to speak on or off the record, saying he didn't want his life destroyed and had moved on from his troubled youth. Since the case is still officially open, it seems strange that police haven't followed up any information he might be able to provide. So we decided to follow up ourselves and headed back to the poverty-stricken suburb of Clutiesville that borders the road Inga lived in. Werner had implicated up to five other people in his statements as accomplices, but some of them made sworn statements saying that it was Werner who had in fact confessed to them that he was the murderer. We started off trying to track down Yaku Swanapul at a Stellenbosch address. Werner claimed Yaku had entered Inga's apartment armed with a 38 Special Revolver and said he had later thrown a bloodied knife into the river next to his house. But Yaku had made a sworn statement saying Werner had confessed to him and shown him bite and scratch marks on his arms. Werner said on the day of the murder, he and Yaku walked past the university student cafeteria, the Nielsi, and had spotted Inga. He claimed Yaku pointed Inga out and said she had a cell phone, laptop and money and that he knew where she lived in Velkofonden estate. It's a small detail and may not be true, but the interesting thing is, on the day of her murder, Inga did actually have lunch at the Nielsi with a friend. Just a couple of hours later, Inga was dead. Hello. Uh, there used to be a guy who lived here uh, about 16 years ago called Yaku Swanapul. Yes. I think he's actually in jail, but I'm not sure which one. That conversation led us to Yaku's uncle, who confirmed that Yaku is in jail, but didn't know for what crime. I think he's in, 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 um, in Bosma. Okay. I actually want nothing to do with him because he's, 
over the years is, is, is made me bankrupt. Bankrupt, yeah. Next, we headed to Clotisville. It's poverty evident the moment you drive into it. Children listlessly play on the streets. Adults are out of work, sitting around outside. Parks are empty. Even the high school looks derelict. But the upmarket suburb Inga lived in is just a stone's throw away. It's a community where everybody knows each other, and it doesn't take us long to find out that one of Werner's associates is most likely dead. He's a short guy, ne? Yes, no, he's, he's died. Melvin Klaas, Melvin is a Melvin is a even die wist zelf weer. Ik heb op het tijdje jong. Goed, Melvin. Werner claimed he was outside Inga's apartment with a young woman named Eleanor. The address listed on her statement had remained the same. Hello. Mora, is your daughter here, Eleanor? No. Do you know where she is? Down at the railway track, we found the address of Wilmore Adams. He had made a statement that Werner had confessed to him and Yaku at Yaku's house eight days after the murder. He also said that Werner showed him bite and scratch marks on his arms. As we arrived, a frail man with a prominent scar on his nose returned home, Wilmore's father. Wilmore Adams. He's in jail. He's in jail. Got uh, 16 years. He got 16 years? Yeah. What, do you know what crime it was? Murder. Murder. Well, thank you very much. It's very helpful. Thank you. Good luck, eh? Uh, sorry, uh, uh, that case is in uh, Lot. the Lot's case. Yes. <laughs> What murder was that that he was convicted for? It's uh, a friend of him. He was friends. Hmm. Sure. So that left us with two out of four in jail, one dead, and the other nowhere to be found. Prisoners are not allowed to receive phone calls and can only be visited by direct family or their lawyers we had reached a dead end. Anthony Altbecker believes there should be repercussions for the police officers involved. Not one was charged with perjury, evidence tampering or defeating the ends of justice. In the appeal court, when Fred ultimately unsuccessfully sued the police, the appeal court found that the police officers, not only did they lie, they lied maliciously. They knew they were lying least one police officer. I think that there is a legitimate case of, of fraud and there's certainly for um, obstruction of justice. In fact, in South Africa, even if a police officer is disciplined, it only stays on their record for six months. Bruce Bartholomew, who incorrectly matched the shoe print to the bloody mark in Inga's bathroom, has left the police service and now works for a transport company. Franz Moritz, who supervised the hammer tests on several pig's heads, now heads up the South Dakota Crime Lab in the United States. Inspector Dion de Villiers, the lead investigator, has since been promoted from inspector to detective. 
investigating supervisor of the Engelotts murder investigation, Ati Trollope, was promoted, despite accusations of evidence fabrication in at least one other case. He died in 2014. Independent forensic expert David Klatso has strong words. He believes the entire South African justice system is collapsing. The, the political interference in both the police and the laboratories is such that I see a steadily worsening, worsening downward spiral. I see people coming through the ranks who are unqualified. I see people who are utterly incompetent at managing a crime scene. I see people who are incapable of writing down a simple statement, let alone anything complex like a forensic investigation. I see levels of incompetence in both the state forensic laboratory and in the health chemical laboratories that are truly breathtaking. It means that we're going to be without an adequate forensic science service in the next five years completely. Even the pockets of excellence are going to be diluted to the point where they're ineffective. Well, there are a number of ways in which you can fix it. The first is by removing the police from the forensic science service. All forensic science should be independent of the police. Secondly, all forensic science done by the state should be available to both prosecution and defense. No reason why it shouldn't be. Science is science, and a fact is a fact whether you tell it to me or to the defense or to the, the prosecution. It should be the same fact. The third thing is that the political interference in appointments of staff at these laboratories should stop forthwith. FBI shoeprint expert Bill Bodziak says the American system is more evenly weighted. I think if it weren't for the fact that Fred came from a well-to-do family, they would have never had a chance. The judge would have accepted the word of the police. He would have accepted the word of the forensic examiner, of Bruce Bartholomew, of the crime scene recovery. He wouldn't have challenged it, and Fred would ultimately have been found guilty. It's customary in homicide cases in the United States and and other crimes of a serious nature. The defense is always going to have at their fingertips the resources to retain other examiners who can check the work of the police forces. Nusheen Ofani Gadimi, formerly of the Wits Justice Project, says it's encouraging that the average person in South Africa has access to legal aid lawyers, but there are far too few of them, covering too many trials. If you're poor in this country, your, your chance of, of receiving a fair trial is, is vastly hampered. There are absolutely innocent people behind bars in South Africa today. And we can see uh, every day that there's miscarriages of justice, small ways and big ways. And again, it seems this is not unique to South Africa. And do you think that it's possible that there are innocent people in prison in America currently? I'm not going to go there. (laughs) I would not be surprised, but I have no way of knowing. Obviously, if they're still in jail, the fabrications have not been discovered. Forensic and DNA testing backlogs stand at over 172,000 cases revealed by the police ministry and parliament in March 2021. 
and access to 8 million pieces of evidence have reportedly been lost in recent years due to a contractual dispute. Also concerning is the fact that the state does not safeguard the evidence in criminal matters once the case is over. Evidence boxes are sent to the investigating officers who are supposed to return them to their police station. We now know that most or all of the evidence in this case has disappeared. Fred says he still carries the memory of Inga with him. The first time I literally saw Inga was uh, our very first church service but obviously didn't ever know that I was going to be sitting next to her in class the next day. Um, she was just very lively, I think. She had a lot of energy with her and a lot of passion for life, so she was joyous and very, very uplifting to me as well. Fred has moved on in his private life and has since married. He will spend the rest of his life paying back the state's legal fees as well as those of his own lawyers. Despite this, he says he's not bitter and won't let the fact that the real killer hasn't been found dictate his life. Obviously, you want that person to be found. I, I hear you, but I think what I've had to deal with personally is not relying on that for, um, for me to move on. And so I dealt with that in the sense that I've almost made peace with the fact that whether that person is found or not, um, will not define my status as being innocent of this crime. Um, so I carry on obviously being myself as innocent of this crime, but also assuming that the people around me and people involved in my life do not wait for the actual perpetrator to be found before they make up their mind about me. Um, and so that is a liberating way of looking at it, because if, if, if I were depending on the real perpetrator to be found before I would believe that other people actually think I'm innocent, then that again creates this very almost unhealthy type of relationship that I have with people. So in that sense, I guess that's how I dealt with it. I, I choose to believe people on face value. He says the actions of some police officers and others involved in the case will not hold him back from moving on. He believes it's forgiveness that has ultimately set him free. I think forgiveness is, is a grace. Um, and that in a big way has, has set me free. Um, I think um, in as much as when other people wrong us, it, it hurts us not forgiving those people, keeps us in, in that almost dangerous and bitter and, and lonely place. And that really helped me to to build new healthy relationships again. Um, it's helped me to see the good in people again. It, to, to be very realistic again and honest about it, I have to recognize that there were a number of people that did things that, that affected my life in a very negative way. I mean, that, that almost goes without saying. Um, but at the same time, what I did experience was a lot of people that did extraordinary things in my support. So by all means, I think um, the experiences I had from, from those that supported me helped me to keep my faith in, in the character of people in general, oh, definitely. Um, so I, I can honestly say I'm, I'm not bitter. Um, I, I, I really appreciate the support that I've received and because of that I think I am where I am today. 
um, and that outweighs to a large extent um, the, the negative experience I had around around the actions of some other people. And finally, you know, asking, am I able to, to be happy again? Yes, I've had the privilege of meeting a wonderful woman who is now my wife, and, and we really are able to to live life to the full and to enjoy life and be happy. So, so yeah, I'm very, very blessed. But years of Fred's life were spent almost exclusively on defending himself. Specifically, I think the thing that strikes me most about, um, about all of this is the loss of time. Um, most of all, I spent days, weeks, months, maybe even years if you add it up, um, in courtrooms and consulting with lawyers and forensic experts while you know, my friends and other people in their 20s went on and you know, did other things and got married and made friends and so on. So the loss of time um, is probably a big thing for me. The loss of time must also weigh heavily on Inga's parents. It's been over 16 years since they laid their only child to rest. The miscarriage of justice in this story is not just about an innocent man who almost went to jail and a broken criminal system. It's also about a young woman whose life was cut short and whose murderer is still out there somewhere. Justice for Engelotz remains elusive. Anyone with information on the Engelotz murder can contact Crime Stop on 08 600 1 The Engelotz story, A Miscarriage of Justice, was produced by Matthew Brown and Catherine Rice for News 24. Audio recording by Matt Gare, Craig Reinefeldt, Al Kolstock and Luke Peters. Music courtesy of Getty Images and Epidemic Sound. Multimedia editors, Charlene Roert and Nokutula Maniati. News24 editor-in-chief, Adrian Besson. For other News24 podcasts, visit our multimedia page where you can find Exodus, White Collar Heist and Missing Matthew. For more exclusive content, subscribe to news24.com.